0: Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resene. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. Our first conference keynote uh, this morning uh, will be presented by uh, Jennifer Keysmat, Chief Planner for the uh, City of Toronto. Uh, this keynote is hosted in partnership uh, with Auckland Conversations and proudly sponsored by Buffer Miskell, uh, New Zealand's leading consultants on environmental planning uh, and design. Uh, the Auckland Conversations programme is an Auckland Council initiative that Presents international and national experts that can inspire and inform on how cities can be transformed to become livable, well designed, and connected places where people want to live. Work and play. Uh, So, we'd like to acknowledge the Auckland Conversations sponsors and give a warm welcome to the live stream audience that's uh, joining the session this morning on the Auckland Conversations uh, website, uh, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz, and also on the live uh, Twitter feed, hashtag Auckland Conversations and hashtag uh, Liverable. Uh, it's now a pleasure to invite Rachel uh, DeLambert, partner at Boffin Miskell, uh, to the stage to uh, welcome uh, Jennifer Keysmat.
1: We have to do that, that height challenge thing. Ludo and I will be uh, about level pegging. Sorry, had to do it. Uh, kia ora Tato, um, and thank you, Wallace, my, my Sunday morning friend. Um, Boffin was really very pleased um, to be part in bringing uh, Jennifer Kees-Matt, um to Auckland and to the RMLA Livable Conference. Jennifer's a planner and urban designer, and she's a perfect fit for the themes of the conference. And I think that you're all in for a real treat, treat in terms of her presentation this morning. Now, Toronto perhaps isn't the city that we have tended to follow closely in this part of the world, given that I think we're much more attracted to those West Coast uh, cities of America, the, the, the Vancouver's, uh, San Francisco, LA. But when um, you, you look at the challenges that we face in Auckland and then Toronto's, particularly around livability, housing, affordability, and then the relationship of transport with housing um, and land use integration, but then also how you take communities with you in cities of rapid growth and change then I think we have an incredible amount to learn from Toronto. And Jennifer's perfectly placed with her roles um, in relation to the Chief Planner at Toronto, the City of Toronto, and in her earlier initiatives and roles to bring real lessons for us here in Auckland. Um, There are certainly a lot of parallels, um, and I think um, there are many insights that Jennifer can bring from us to us from those roles, and I think probably her struggles and challenges as much as her many successes um, um, in in the various roles that she's had. So very shortly, I will say welcome to the stage, but before I do that, you might see me also depart, which I notice everybody to date has, which is a bit unfortunate. I, Through a trick of ill fate on my part and uh, the environment courts I'm actually due there very shortly Um, and as we know that's a bit of a non-negotiable so um, I'm going to be listening to the delayed feed rather than the live presentation and I'm going to look forward to catching up with Jennifer later in the day so without further ado Jennifer welcome to the stage
2: Thank you so much, Rachel. It is absolutely thrilling to be here. And I have to tell you that when I got off the plane, I, of course, the first thing I did was went for a walk up Queen Street, and I popped in this little store and there was a map. And on this map, they had in fact flipped the world around. And so instead of being on the bottom of the globe, New Zealand and Australia were on the top of the globe. And I have to tell you that I stared at this map for a very long time because it was really discombobulating to see the world flip the other way. And of course, we all know the earth is round and there's no top and there's no bottom. But of course, this idea that I'm not at the bottom of the world, but as I stand in front of you at the top of the world is a very powerful one. So it's thrilling to be here in New Zealand with you at the top of the world. I'm going to have to buy that map and take it home for my kids to give them a little bit of perspective. I'm going to talk to you today about Toronto. And I'm going to talk to you about Toronto because there are things that are happening in Toronto that might have something to say of relevance to what's happening here in Auckland. And I say this in part because the comments from your mayor as an introduction made it abundantly clear that there are a tremendous number of similarities. The way we're changing, the way we're growing, in fact, are very similar. So what I'd like to do, trusting that my slides will appear, is begin by telling telling you a little bit about some of the transformation that's happening in the City of Toronto. Uh, Of course, it's always a good thing to talk about what you know. And so I am going to focus on the transformations that we see in our city as they might be relevant in order to um, provide some fodder for the conversation that I'm going to have with Ludo after the presentation. Are the slides coming up there? There we go. Uh, Very much like Auckland, one of the things that we've learned in Toronto over the course of the past decade is that we're popular. We're in fact doing some things right. Uh, I hear that you're growing by 50,000 people on an annual basis. We're actually growing by 100,000 people on an annual basis and all the constraints that come along with that. As we grow and change, one of the things we're committed to doing is becoming something fundamentally different than what we were. Our goal as we grow is to become more livable to become more sustainable, to use the growth and the opportunities that we see that come with growth to become a fundamentally transformed place. This is a slide of our city. Our city, like yours, is an amalgamated region. 15 years ago, we were seven cities. Now we're one city. This area is 613 square kilometers to give you a sense of scale. And right in the very center, There's 17 square kilometers that are, in fact, the most urban part of the city, the downtown core. And that part of the city is growing four times faster than the rest of the city. And this is important because what we've seen is that it's the most urban part of the city that is, in fact, as a result of the transition that we've been going through, becoming the most attractive part of the city to transform. Now, of course, downtowns are in vogue all across North America, and you could argue across the world, but in fact, none have grown at the same scale that we're growing in downtown Toronto. And you can just imagine all the infrastructure problems because you're facing some of them here that come with this rapid growth. So whereas currently there's approximately 250,000 people living in the downtown, We're projecting that in another 20 years time, there'll be 475,000 people living just in that 17 square kilometers within the context of a 600 square kilometer city. So one of our challenges is how we spread the growth out and I'll talk a little bit about that. In addition, this is our employment hub. 51% of the national GDP is actually generated in this 17 square kilometers And over 500,000 jobs are also in this core, projected to be uh, uh, 750,000 jobs within another 20 year period. So we're packing a tremendous amount of intensity into this core. Now, this is as a result of an intentional shift. This is an outcome of planning policy. This is a result of trying to do things differently, to become something different from that very suburban typology that exists across the city. So you can see in the bottom bar here, the city of Toronto's overall growth. Now you can see in the second bar, downtown's growth. And you see that in the last decade, we've been attracting the growth into our most urban areas. Now, the third bar at the top of the screen is the most suburban part of our region. And you can see an enormous decline in that suburban growth. And I'll tell you why that is in a minute. But there's a fundamental question that every city must confront. You cannot grow out and grow up and offer a high quality of life. If you're going to be adding more people and you're going to be adding more cars, your environmental footprint will only get larger. Your quality of life will only decline as the long commute becomes a part of everyday life. So driving growth into existing built-up areas is about livability. It's also about affordability because it's pretty expensive to drive everywhere as opposed to walking and cycling. So this is a critical question that cities must struggle with. And one of the transformations that has taken place over the past 15 years in Toronto is that we are now primarily building multiples, higher density housing. We're building very little suburban sprawl. That's why we see that shift on that graph. Almost 90% of the new housing in 2016, 90% was multiples, condos and apartments, as opposed to single-family homes. This is about reducing our congestion. This is about becoming a more sustainable city. This is about long-term livability and affordability embracing a new kind of built form that creates an opportunity to live with a smaller environmental footprint and a stronger sense of community. So our skyline is changing. It's becoming denser. This is what the downtown looked like just 10 years ago. And this is what it looks like today. This is the transformation and I'll go back so you can see that again in just one decade. And in the next decade, this transformation is going to happen again. And the question becomes, as we become denser, can our quality of life go up? Can affordability go up? And it can if we get the big moves and the smaller moves right. We have a tremendous way to go to get there. And one of the hottest topics of conversation in Toronto is our infrastructure deficit, the quality and character of our public spaces, affordability, traffic congestion, and investing in transit. So we know we are only part way along on this journey, but I'm going to show you some of the things that we're doing to try to shift our course to become a more sustainable, livable, and affordable city. Now, this is our downtown core. Our peak density isn't too bad. We're at approximately 17,000 people per square kilometer but our average density in the city is very low. And this is a reflection of the fact that we're a spiky city. Very high density in the core of the city and then very low density in our suburbs. So a clue to what needs to change is actually transforming our suburbs. We are focusing on that missing middle. How do we, in fact, add mid-rise density to bridge that gap between the spiky, really high-density parts of the city and the lower-density parts of the city? And to put this in perspective, our peak density is about the same as London, England. But the average density in London is much higher because it's not a spiky city like we are. And then, of course, New York is way off the map. We're at 17,000 people per square kilometer. New York's peak density is 58 people per square kilometers. We don't actually aspire to that, that's not our objective. Uh, But the average density is approximately 10,000 people per square kilometers, which is actually a very reasonable uh, amount of density. And remember, there's all kinds of great benefits that come with this level of density, including the opportunity to do a whole variety of things within walking distance of home. You only get that from density, having that critical mass that allows people to live in relatively small communities, but also to have a really sophisticated transit network that allows you to get anywhere to anywhere on transit that only exists when you start getting these higher densities, because otherwise you just can't get the frequency of service or you can't get the price to provide that frequency of service that makes transit a true option. So when we're looking at intensifying our city, we're driving our growth to our main transit corridors. And I'll show you a little bit about what that looks like. So we see ourselves at a moment where we have a real massive convergence taking place at the highest policy level and at the detailed precinct planning level that is allowing us to turn the city into something better, to make it something different from what it has been in the past. And we have to start at the highest level. We have been, for the past 30 years, sprawling outwards. 10 years ago, our provincial government brought in our green belt plan. This is one million hectares of land that has been protected as agricultural land. We copied on a big scale what Portland, Oregon did 40 years ago on a small scale. We put a greenbelt in place. And the objective of the greenbelt was to shift land economics in such a way that we are now driving growth into our existing built-up areas. This is really important. You do not get intensification on a significant scale unless you limit what's happening on the edges of the city. You can't grow out and up at the same time. You can't suck and blow. And this policy framework is about saying, hold on a minute, we're going to shift the way growth happens in our region. We're going to drive those growth, growth to those areas where we already have infrastructure. And we're going to do this precisely because we want to become a transit oriented region. We want to get those densities to a point where transit becomes the viable alternative. So this high level policy framework is really the key starting point that allows everything else you're going to see in this presentation become a reality. But we also know that young people have a very different desire in terms of their consumer preference for how they want to live in urban places. and cities that aren't Attracting young people, of course, are going to eventually go into decline. So we recognize catering to young people in transforming how we change as a city as being essential. We know that young people, they want to walk to work. We know that they want to move by bike. We know that they're no longer getting their driver's licenses when they turn 16 if they have that choice. So we're trying to change the city to increase the choices for walking cycling and living very close to where you work and if we look at that downtown core that is seeing the bulk of our growth a fascinating thing has happened 75 percent of the population walks or cycles to work in the downtown this is fabulous from a sustainability perspective but also from a quality of life and an affordability perspective, because these young people do not need to own a car. They do not need to pay for parking. They do not need insurance. They do not need gas. They pay a little bit more for a smaller space in the core as a trade-off for a higher quality of life and a more sustainable way of living. But we've also discovered that across the city as a whole, even in our suburban areas, that people want complete communities. They want the option to do a variety of things within walking distance of home. Pembina Institute is an organization that conducts research in Canada, and they put out a survey and they asked, would you be willing to trade off a smaller home with a smaller yard in exchange for being within walking distance to shopping, the doctor, the dentist, transit, and or a larger yard, a larger home, but you don't have those amenities within walking distance at a lower price point. 86% in fact chose walking. This is really important data that gives us an input into focusing on creating those complete communities by transforming our traditional suburbs. So this is our urban structure plan, and this is a really important part of the uh, narrative that is driving the transformation that you're going to see in the upcoming slides. The downtown core is the mustard yellow piece that you see. The linear areas that are shown as, as brown are our avenues. Those are areas where we are adding mid-rise development as a way of increasing the mix of uses and the density in the traditional car-oriented suburbs, but they also correspond to our rapid transit corridors. So we are directing our growth to our main transit corridors because as we grow, we don't want to add cars. We simply do not have the the road capacity to add more cars. In fact, we want to take away capacity for cars and add it for pedestrians and cyclists. And this is a critical part of our vision of becoming a more livable, sustainable and affordable city. So this is a little bit what that looks like. This is along a highway and a subway corridor. It's about adding green uh, sidewalks. This is right in the heart of our suburbs, in our city. We are adding mid-rise development, this project is under development today, it's about adding a critical mass of housing around our main transit corridors in a green environment that is pedestrian oriented that gives people the choice of living without a a car. We recognize that affordability isn't an outcome of great urbanism, although it is necessary to it. And this is a really important point because the world over we face a great risk that as we create great great cities, they increasingly become more and more exclusive. They become playgrounds for the rich. This is happening in my city. We're seeing global capital from all over the world landing in our city. And this is driving up housing prices and creating a risk that people who live and work in the city cannot afford housing in the city. There's only one way, in my experience, to address this, and it's by having intentional policy that seeks to create a city for all. It's about being explicit at the outset that our cities will be places, not just for tourists, but will be places where people can live and work, and in particular, raise a family. And in the next slide, as I walk through some examples of changes that we've made, I'll talk about what some of those intentional policy mechanisms are. Because just investing in public space will not make your city inclusive. Investing in great transit will, in fact, drive housing prices up. It will make your city more exclusive. If that's not the goal, then thinking about affordability and policy measures to drive affordability is critical. Now, let me be clear, we have not solved this in Toronto, but there's a variety of things that we're doing to ensure that we're adding affordable housing, and we're seeking to become more and more aggressive as we do that. The first key move that we're making is urbanizing our avenues and this is about embracing the mid-rise city. So going back to that map, it's those brown areas on this map, those linear corridors when we can add linear neighbourhoods that we are currently transforming. This is the built form typology. We have mid-rise guidelines to drive this typology. Our goal is to create great pedestrian environments. So we don't want these buildings to be too tall because we need sunlight on the sidewalks. We need Main Street retail so that they function as part of an existing neighbourhood. These are all projects that are either built or currently under construction in the city. This is an example of that mid-rise typology being added right in the heart of our suburbs, but it can take a lot of different forms. This is another example of gentle intensification. You can see that the taller forms have been pushed into the centre of the block. And this is another example, and this is one of my favourite examples because it conforms directly uh, to our mid-rise guidelines. You can see the higher stories step back, that is to ensure that we maintain the sunlight on the sidewalk. But what you can also see in this slide, that this is a new building uh, in a built form that is in a state of transformation. Look at the buildings to the east and the buildings to the west. They have yet to transform to adopt this mid-rise typology. This is about adding a new form in an environment where it doesn't yet exist. And this is another great slide that shows the city in a state of evolution. Adding more housing, adding more housing density. This is a streetcar corridor in the city. Now this is a suburban corridor, which I like to call anywhere USA although it's anywhere Toronto, uh, because these wide arterial roads, I suspect you've got a few of them here in Auckland as well, that in fact are faced with a tremendous amount of surface parking, they too can become something fundamentally different. So the example here I'm going to show you is a corridor that is 22 kilometres long, running right through the heart of the city. Not all of it looks like this typology, which is very suburban, some of it is more urban. But the big move on this corridor is to add LRT. So we are currently building out 22 kilometers of LRT right through the heart of the city. But we're also transforming the street, adding cycling lanes, widened sidewalks and green infrastructure along the streetscape, and then also adding a mid-rise typology along the corridor. Now, this is the suburbs. This is about transforming the suburbs to become walkable linear neighborhoods with new levels of density. Remember that slide that I showed you of the greenbelt plan? This isn't possible without the greenbelt plan. The greenbelt policy framework directs growth into our existing areas. In the absence of the plan, there's no incentive to not do the easy thing, because the easy thing is to keep, keep sprawling outward, to continue building suburbs and greenfields. This is actually a little bit trickier and involves public investment like LRT. But because of that larger policy framework, we can deliver on this new vision. And this is the same typology, but where the LRT is below grade. It's below grade for 11 kilometers. This is that same area. This is the built form framework that has been approved by City Council. And the streetscape is currently under construction today. It's a far cry from that highway typology that it is today. And this is how we are seeking to become a more livable city. Now, this is that entire corridor right through the heart of the city. The public investment is the LRT, the new streetscape, the new sidewalks, the cycling infrastructure. It has been followed by an astronomical level of private investment. 17,000 residential units are proposed along this corridor. And you know what's so powerful? Many of those projects will have their parking requirements forgiven. No parking. Because the people who live along this corridor will not need to own a car. So we're adding population density without adding more cars. We're adding population density in the places where we can provide transportation choice. Because of the density in the linear neighbourhoods and the mix of uses, you can walk to work You can walk to the doctor, you can walk to the dentist, you can walk to do your grocery shopping, or you can take a cycling lane, or you can connect into the broader city's transit network on LRT. This is the opportunity of creating places that are fundamentally different from how they looked in the past. This is another example, Dufferin Avenue. Uh, You can see here that there's many strip malls. This too is right in the heart of our suburbs. And you can see here, what I like about this slide, is you can see how it's right up against single-family homes. To the bottom side of those slides, those are all single-family homes. Currently, if you live in one of those homes, you get in your car to do everything because you must, you really don't have a lot of choices. But urbanizing the avenue is about providing choice within walking distance of home and adding new housing typologies along the corridor. That strip malls, those parking lots are being transformed into this, a new amenity in the suburbs. We're urbanizing our suburbs to make them more sustainable places. The second key way that we're responding to this mandate of creating a livable and affordable uh, uh, city is by urbanizing our classic suburbs by adding gentle density and new housing types. This is a typical uh, 1950s strip mall. This is a picture from when it was originally built. This is what it looks like today. This is right in the heart of one of our most beautiful suburbs in Etobicoke. Very high-end housing. And here too, you pretty much have to walk, every, drive everywhere, including if you wanna to go to this mall, there's no pedestrian connections to the adjacent suburbs. So we are transforming this into a hub right in the heart of the suburbs. The idea being that there will be choice in terms of how you can move the destinations that you can walk to. So this is what this new community will look like. It will include affordable housing, seniors housing. There's still parking here but the parking has been put underground. All of the new buildings conform to our green roof bylaw, where we require green roofs. And there's a whole variety of new housing types that have been added here. Now, I have a personal story that I'll tell you, which is my husband actually grew up in this classic suburb and uh, four siblings, his parents had a pretty big house. And when the kids moved out of the house, they had this great big house. They loved their neighborhood. They didn't wanna move out of their neighborhood, but there was one, Pretty simple problem. There wasn't anywhere to move in the neighbourhood. And uh, I like to tell them that this project is for them. Unfortunately, it came 10 years too late. They could have stayed in their neighbourhood if this has been built, because urbanizing your classic suburbs is about adding choice that can respond to people at all ages of their lifespan. So young people can live here, but people who are downsizing can live here too. Now, my in-laws would never move into the downtown core of the city. That's too urban for them. But to stay in the classic suburbs in a different housing typology, now that would have been a real choice. And we failed in terms of our public policy because we didn't have this choice. And now we are going to have this choice by urbanizing our classic suburbs. And this is a little bit of what some of the amenity will look like in that new area. The third way that we're responding to livability is about detailed precinct planning. Ensuring that the promise materializes. It's one thing to say that we're going to densify the city, and then it's another to actually get the mix of uses right in such a way that this is a really high quality of life. In fact, for many people one of the reasons why they don't actually like density is because there's so many high-density projects in our cities that are not well done. The design detail compromises walkability, sustainability, and quality of life. So, on a brownfield site, uh, in our downtown core, very close to our waterfront, we have a precinct called the West Dawnlands. And uh, for 30 years, almost my whole life, this has just been a brownfield with some old neglected heritage buildings. Well we've protected those heritage buildings and we've created a precinct plan and as a result of hosting the Pan Am Games in 2015 we fast-tracked the building out of this neighbourhood. Now what's important about this neighbourhood is it's about a 10-minute walk to the downtown. We've required that 20% of all the units are affordable units. We've also added student housing. We've added university uses. We've added housing for our First Nations communities and servicing for our First Nations community. But we've also added market housing. So this is a true, complete, mixed-use community with a really high quality public realm that becomes really the hook that all of these different uses hang on. This is in fact what it looks like today. You can see uh, there's a couple more parcels that are now under construction and there's two more parcels that have just been released by the province for 720 new affordable housing units. Leveraging provincially owned lands and precincts where we've done our master planning for affordable housing requiring 20% affordable housing is a key way that we're delivering on our mandate for new affordable precincts. And this is what the street level condition looks like. This is what the quality of the public realm looks like. This is a little bit different from the old model, 20, 30 years ago where we created clusters of affordable housing and we didn't mix it with market housing and where we didn't focus on a really high quality public realm. The objective here is to ensure that the high quality public realm actually creates gathering places for social interaction in the community. But we're also really preoccupied with ensuring that families can live in these dense urban places. We've just completed a study called Growing Up Vertical, which is all about raising families in high-rise and mid-rise communities. We worked with architects, interior designers, and we focused on really three scales. Getting the unit design right, the building right, but also the neighbourhood right. So this precinct has one of the best children's parks in the city. Why? Because we want to make living in vertical communities a first choice for families. We don't want to force families into environments where they have to have a long commute that compromises family life. We want families, we want parents to have the opportunity to drop children off in the daycare in their building and then to walk five or ten minutes to work so that they can walk back to the daycare if they've got a sick kid, or they can walk home at lunchtime to visit their child and then walk back to work. This is the dream that we can offer in vertical communities. Today, many families get pushed way out into the suburbs to find housing that's affordable, and they end up compromising time with their family. Why? Because they're sitting in a car for 45 minutes each way. We're stealing their time from their children. And this is why we created our growing up vertical policies. It's about ensuring that affordable housing in the core of the city that offers excellent quality of life for families is what we are delivering on. We're also focusing on strategic site-specific infill. Now, I don't even know if this is a challenge in New Zealand, but in the 50s, In Toronto, we did build some higher-density housing in our suburbs, and it's a tower in the park. The assumption was that people would drive everywhere. Uh, This housing very quickly became very poor-quality housing. In fact, this housing is frequently where many immigrants will go uh, because the housing is cheap. And it's cheap because it's disconnected from any kind of amenity or urban vibrancy. And it's also typically disconnected from transit. So we're thinking very carefully about how we can add transit, but also transform this housing into being a high-quality form of housing. There's over 2,000 of these apartment towers in the Toronto region, home to over a million people. And this is affordable housing in Toronto. So the question becomes, how do we ensure this is high-quality housing? We have a dream that every immigrant coming into our city within one generation is a part of the middle class. We don't really have a significant problem with multi-generational poverty that you see in some countries that are also high receptacles for immigrants. About 50% of Torontonians are foreign-born. And within one generation, most of those immigrant families actually have a university education and are absorbed into the professional class. That is a critical part of our democracy and of the Canadian dream. But improving this housing and ensuring that we make it easier to integrate into Canadian society through access to libraries, access to transit, that provides access to jobs and education is one of the key challenges that we're trying to solve. So I'll give you an example. It's called Parkway Forest. Think of the most suburban suburbia you possibly can. Highway interchanges, big malls, uh, low density, that's Parkway Forest. You can see here the ground floor before and after for those who are urban designers in the room. Buildings that were floating in the middle of the site, unowned uh, park spaces that were dangerous and unused, were transformed by bringing the buildings up to the street, creating a street wall, infilling strategically. This is what that looks like. We added new mid-rise buildings in order to create a street edge, to create a pedestrian realm, to make these communities walkable communities that connected into a new subway station. Also adding buildings that allowed for a mixture of uses. These buildings at the edge of the street can have not-for-profit agencies, grocery stores, a whole variety of amenities that didn't exist within walking distance before. You had to own a car if you lived in this suburban environment. And this is what the infill looks like, keeping the existing affordable rental housing, adding new housing that can create a clear and legible pedestrian realm. Now, we wanted to figure out a way to draw pedestrians into the site, and so we created a public art installation. These are beacons by Douglas Coupland, the writer of Generation X. Uh, He does a lot of public art competitions in the City of Toronto. And the beacons create a legible pedestrian realm within the heart of this new community. And they start at the transit corner, and they lead and terminate at a new school, a new community centre, and a new pool. This was all about creating spaces where pedestrians belonged in an area where previously it wasn't clear that pedestrians belonged, and quite frankly, people didn't walk because it was dangerous. So new streets with buildings with eyes on the street, new housing forms, so adding market housing where there had only been rental housing before, and also making it very clear that there is a high-quality pedestrian realm and what the pedestrian realm is before, whereas before there were just a lot of grassy knolls that no one used. But also focusing on those amenities for children and new buildings, the building that you see in the background is a new building, the building on the right is an existing apartment building, New buildings with market housing adjacent to affordable housing. Affordable housing I think is what uh, you would call state housing here. And we used a policy mechanism which we call Section 37. The developer was required in exchange for this new density to give us monies as a city that were then used to revitalize the existing state housing or the existing affordable housing. So in this project, housing that had previously been in a state of disrepair, in fact, became revitalized as well. It's a win, win, win. And of course, a new community center that everyone could share. Both those living in affordable and those living in market housing can come together in this new community facility. Another example of a large scale revitalization, hundreds and hundreds of acres right in the heart of the city. This too, state housing, that was highly problematic, no street grid, orphaned orphaned public spaces, no mixed uses, Uh, it was very difficult for people to buy groceries who lived in this community even though it was in the heart of downtown Toronto. We've fundamentally transformed this area by adding new street blocks and adding new uses. This is what it looked like before. This is the exact same corner I'm about to show you. This is what it looks like today. This is on a streetcar line, now there's a grocery store, there is a mixture of affordable or state as well as social housing, as well as market housing, mixing up these uses to provide new affordable housing and to provide amenity and a mixed use community. And here's an example of what the first phase looks like that you can see a little bit to the left of the screen. The third phase is at the top of the screen, which hasn't changed yet. And you can see that there's a mixture of building typologies, adding in a high quality public realm. The area to the south is now a massive park and community center that's already been built out. But creating a legible pe- pedestrian realm, we're making it very clear that people are welcome and belong in this community, spaces where people can engage one, with one another another is a key part of the vision of creating these new mixed-use, high-density communities. Investing in our public realm, creating quality public space for public life. The Bentway is a project right in the heart of our downtown whereby we've taken a super highway structure which we, uh, for many generations, had a massive fight in the city about whether it should stay up or whether it should come down under the uh, many, many Uh, uh, generations of City Council in order to appease suburban voters it has in fact continued to stay up and in the end we've decided to work with it. You can see here new communities in the heart of downtown. All of these communities you can see the population density that's been added. This is within about a 10, 10 square kilometer area. And right in the heart dividing this community is this expressway? And so the question became how do we provide a new amenity for the community and link these neighborhoods together, providing linear access to the core of the city? And the core of the city is right where you see the skydome on the right side of the screen. So this is what that highway infrastructure looks like. We've built up the neighborhoods right adjacent to this highway infrastructure, which is very well used. We're turning it into a dynamic new public space. We've created a new community trust, and it will be a multi-season programmed space that also acts as a linear parkway. What we're trying to do here is take some of the mistakes of the past and actually manipulate them and transform them to become something good, to link together areas of the city that are divided by using this infrastructure in new ways. And we've kind of called these orphaned spaces that we're transforming to link together and connect the city. And this is what the space will look like in the the winter. And this space was initiated by a $25 million private sector donation uh, that was matched by a $10 million donation by the city. And it will be open within six months time. We're also investing in waterfront parks, as you are, thinking very carefully about the amenity of the waterfront as being something fundamentally uh, new in the city as we transition from an industrial waterfront to a complete mixed community. We've kept some of our industrial uses. That's a sugar refinery that you see with a blue roof. The area that you see in the foreground is now Sugar Beach. This is what Sugar Beach looks like. One of the things that we've celebrated is the bumping up of the industrial uses with the public amenities and the public uses. We've also added in new office uses, new residential uses. We're transforming the waterfront to become a dynamic public space. This is uh, our wave deck park. And the wave deck is about extending out the public realm to cantilever over the piers to add public space in areas where pedestrians currently get squeezed. This is Wave Deck Park. We're also thinking about using infrastructure in a multitude of ways. The old model was really about public art being public art, infrastructure being infrastructure. This is an example of public art. That's also a park. That's also a stormwater management feature. It's extra hard working infrastructure. And we're leading with investment in the public realm, much like you are here in your downtown quarter. Investing public dollars to attract private investment. Now the hook all of this planning hangs on is really our transit network plan. And we've brought forward, I have the great pleasure as Chief Planner, of also being responsible for transit planning in the city. We link together intensification and growth with our transit planning. We see those two things as inseparable. If we want to add people, but we don't want to add cars, we have to add the density to where transit is or where we're putting transit. And this isn't just about one transit line, it's about a transit network. Just like you create create a network for vehicles, transit riders should be able to get anywhere to anywhere in the city on transit using one one transfer. We call it the one, one transfer trip. The idea that you can travel in an L anywhere in the city if you have a network. So what you see here on the screen is the rapid transit network. We are adding a whole variety of different technologies. We're building subways and planning two two new subways. We're building 22 kilometers of LRT, but we also have four more LRT projects, Waterfront LRT, Eglinton East, Eglinton West. Finch LRT is LRT in our suburbs. We're also adding uh, BRT. We've really taken approach that we have to look at the typology, the growth in the city, and add the right technology in the right place in order to create a seamless system where people can move from one technology to the next to use transit as their first choice. Transit is really the hook that this entire vision hangs upon. And the last few slides I'd like to mention to you is about the way we're doing this. We know it's important to transform the way we think about the city. We actually say in our city policy that we need to change our minds. If we're going to change the city, we need to change our minds. We need to think differently about the city. We say in our policy framework that our goal is to move people, not cars. That's a big new way of thinking in our city, which is primarily suburban. So we've embraced a whole variety of mechanisms to transform the discourse in order to transform the city. We have a whole initiative called Growing Conversations, which might be a bit like your Auckland conversations. Uh, I hold Chief Planner Roundtables, which are about asking the questions we don't know the answer to and bringing voices into City Hall that don't usually have access to City Hall. And then we broadcast those conversations and we use those conversations to generate action plans. We also have something called PIPs, Planners in Public Space. Planners go into public space to talk to the city residents about the future of the city. We go to the places where residents already are. We have a planning review panel. We have selected 28 residents through a civic lottery to be our sounding board. This panel is representative of the incomes in the city, the ownership in the city. It's 50% owners, 50% renters. Believe it or not, they have different things to say. It's representative of the ages of the city. There's lots of young people on here because we've got lots of young people in our city. It's representative of the ethnic diversity of our city. There are hundreds and hundreds of languages spoken in Toronto. This sounding board provides us with advice on our policies that we bring forward to City Council in order to ensure that we are sensitized as planners to the diverse voices, experience and perspectives that exist in our city. We've also created a youth research team. And the youth research team are youth talking to youth, advising us on how to transform the city. And they've given us many, many recommendations which we're implementing. As an example, I created a podcast called Invisible City Podcast. It's about cities. It's about the things that you don't see that transform and can be transformative in cities. Why? Because youth said to us, you know what? We don't see the relevance of city planning. But we listen to podcasts. If you made a cool podcast, you might be able to get us hooked in. And the podcast has been hugely popular amongst people under the age of 40. A few older people too, I think. We recognize in our city that affordability is a choice and that affordability and livability are inherently and fundamentally conjoined. The risk is that our cities get better, but only for some. They get better, but in an exclusive way. If we're truly committed to the democratic project, if we're truly committed to being an inclusive city, we will in fact choose to create cities that are affordable and livable for all. Because after all, it really is a choice. Thank you.
0: Abs- absolutely inspiring. A big round of applause for Jennifer Keyes, Matt. Um, next year, you can find me living in Toronto. <laughs> Honestly, the wave the Wave bridge. Fantastic. Now, um, right now, we, we are really running out of time really fast. So I'm just wondering um, uh, who reckons we can squeeze five or ten minutes out of coffee break to keep, uh, keep going with Jennifer? You reckon? Uh, yep. Uh, because uh, this is our one and only chance. So uh, I'm going to introduce now um, Ludo Campbell-Reed. He needs no introduction. Uh, Ludo Campbell-Reed is design champion, general manager of uh, the Auckland design office at Auckland Council, uh, and among his achievements, uh, he worked on the transformation of London's Canary Wharf and in 2003 was shortlisted for the London Planning Awards in the category of Best Park Sector Planner. So he's going to be hosting a small Q&A. Ludo, welcome to the uh, podium, a big round of uh, applause for Ludo here. Um, and if I have time, I will get to some of your questions. Uh, many of you have emailed me through the app, so uh, uh, thank you for that. Uh, and again, uh, a, a, a big thank you to our sponsors, uh, Boffer, Miskell and Auckland Conversations, Ludo, and Geneva. Great.
3: How's the? Uh, does everyone hear me? No. Can you can you hear Is that Ludo? Working. Hello, everybody.
0: Yep. All right. Turn it up. Turn it up a bit. A little bit. Up. All right.
3: Uh, so Jennifer, it's uh, great to be here and it's funny you see I've seen Jennifer for many, many years on, uh, on YouTube clips. we you, uh, communicate via Twitter and um, it's always great to actually see the person and have a proper conversation. Um, what I'm going to try to do is talk a little bit about some of the kind of key tools that you have deployed to help transform Toronto and I, I guess just to start as an idea uh, change Everybody wants progress, okay. but nobody wants change it, it seems. And so your communication techniques were amazing. That, that chief planner roundtable conversation. Why don't I stand up here?
0: No, we've got a microphone coming.
3: Why don't I just use this for, for a minute? So did, did so nobody maybe heard. I was just saying that, Jennifer, one of the key things with cities is it's all about change and transformation. And um, everybody wants progress, but nobody wants change. So there's this big issue around how you help to communicate with the constituents, the elected members, the mayor, everybody's part of it. Your Chief Planner Roundtable sounds like a really intriguing opportunity to get messages out to the public. How did that work and was that an elected members in the room or was it a professional conversation with the public, perhaps?
2: Sure. So, is this one on? It is on. Okay. So, um, Chief Planner Roundtables, I initiated them five years ago and uh, I'll tell you the genesis of them, which was that I was thinking about all these things that I had to do that I didn't know how to do, and I thought, oh, there's some people I need to talk to. I want to bring in some academics. I want to bring in some developers. There's some key community leaders that I'd like to talk to. And then I thought, wait a minute. Why not make this conversation public? And so within the committee rooms in City Hall, we have tables that are set up in in a semicircle, and then there's also a gallery for the public. And so the chief planner roundtables are three hours long, and they're on a whole variety of different topics. The very first one was on resilient cities. We had a whole series that we called Next Generation Suburbs that were on uh, mobility in the suburbs, built form in the suburbs, and then we had one called Arrival City, which was about immigrants in the suburbs, because several generations ago, immigrants came into the core city, but now immigrants tend to come into the suburbs, and they don't necessarily have the amenities that that they need. Uh, We've had a roundtable on Main Streets, on our ravine system, and our ravine strategy. So the roundtables are three hours long. The first hour, there are 10-minute presentations by six guests, who usually there's a few academics. Usually there's some of my colleagues who are within the administration. Uh, as well as other key stakeholders. I usually have a developer, someone from the development industry or the real estate industry, or someone from law who will be at the table as well to talk about the issue from their perspective. Each presentation is very different. And then we have a facilitated discussion for the next really hour and a half to two hours. But importantly, we trend on Twitter nationally in these conversations, and we also live stream the conversations. and. The very first time I did one, we decided we would have people sign up because there's only a limited amount of space in the gallery, and within 24 hours, uh, we had to put in place an overflow room, right. and then we discovered that a lot of people followed live streaming as well. So, you know, I wasn't sure, will people really be interested? Because these are, you know, we, like, we have public conversations, and then these conversations get really detailed, and they're sort of inside baseball, yep. and we discovered that people do really want to do a deep dive on on these issues. And the, uh, and then we always create an action document, and there's a whole series. Growing up vertical is an outcome. That whole policy document, which has now been approved by city council, is an outcome of a chief planner roundtable that was on fam- raising families in the city. And the question that we asked in that round table that we didn't have the answer to was how can we make it more affordable and more desirable to raise families in more urban places? Yeah. And that led to the whole growing up vertical uh, initiative, which has been hugely successful and has really transformed the way the development industry is now building their projects
3: it's a great it 's a, it's a really useful thing, and you think that people aren 't going to be interested, but actually yeah. they 're citizens of the city and so absolutely are and i think that 's been a A really great success story of Toronto is actually the the city engaging with the people. Do you do you have we have an amazing group of advocates in this city, and we're quite lucky to to have them. They're sort of the the new generation, the new tweeters, the tweeters, the the bloggers, and so forth. We have a couple of groups who are pretty powerful, are very helpful. How how about your city? Have you got advocacy people outside who lobby, and are they influential?
2: Yeah, sure, we do absolutely. Um, In fact, I would say that. an enormous amount of the progress that we've made on our cycling infrastructure because uh-huh. you know them. we've we put in cycling lanes and we see increases in you know 600 percent we have truly become a cycling city it's actually a bit astounding to go into our core uh, cycling has become very normalized in a really short period of time a big part of that is cycle TO, which sure. started out as a cycling unit union um, that grew very slowly at first but there a cycling lobby that came up with an amazing strategy. We have 44 city councillors and what they did was basically create lobby groups in each of the 44 wards, it's a lot of work in order to lobby individual councillors and it really, that I worked really closely with them on our messaging because one of the big things that we wanted to transform the message around was that cycling was seen as being kind of this thing that radical people did and recreational people did, but it wasn't really a form of transportation. And so the key messaging that we worked on was making it really clear that in the 21st century city, cycling is a form of transportation. And if it's a form of transportation, first of all, make it safe. And secondly, make it a real choice. And until it's a real choice, people won't do it because it's not safe. And the minute you make it a real choice, the evidence is conclusive around the world, people will choose it.
3: Do, do you have? Um, I should know this. I I, I don't uh, mandatory helmet laws. Do you um, for your bicycling?
2: Because uh, Jeanette's always we don't. told us, you know, we there's don't. safety. And it's such a hot topic. Yeah. Uh, we don't, um, except for children okay. under under 14.
3: So that makes a lot of sense. You know. So anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> but um, just it's interesting when you listen to people like Jennifer. You know, we do know what to do. Most cities should know by now. There's Twitter. There's Google Maps as Google Images, we have been undated with good ideas. The key question is how, and um, the Mayor talked about funding, and I think that's one of the critical challenges for Auckland. And and, uh, Wallace and the team have been talking about this earlier. You know, how are we going to fund some of the things that we need to do? If you think about London, it built its underground uh, when its population was one million. You know, we're 50 years after that conversation and now trying to retrofit a city. How have you, if you don't, just a couple of key mechanisms for funding outside of the rates?
2: So this has been a big debate in Toronto and it's very, very contentious. Uh, but we do have, as a result of lobbying the provincial government for many years, we now have a suite of financial tools that we didn't have in the past. So. We, um, ha- we now have a hotel tax. Road pricing okay. is something that we can now use. Um, parking levies is, an, is a new financial tool that we can use. Um, we have a mechanism that I mentioned briefly called Section 37, whereby yeah. we, it's a section in our Planning Act where we negotiate with developers for an exchange and uplift in zoning. We take back monies in order to build infrastructure. So specifically, Parkway Forest that I showed you, that community centre was paid for by the developer. The public art, the public realm, all of that was paid for the developer in exchange for additional density. So we use those kinds of tools and mechanisms. Uh, We now have a federal government which is on side and recognises the importance of investing in transit. So we just had an announcement for the transit network plan that I just showed you. For some components of it that are still in the planning phases, $4.2 billion from the federal government. This is new, they'd never really, you know, we weren't really on their radar screen before and we've been working really hard with them to say, hey, you know, this is critical to the survival of the country, uh, is transit in our cities. And so we got the federal government to realize that there has to be a federal role in delivering transit in cities. It goes back to sustaining immigration, it goes back to attracting investment, it goes back to livability and sustainability. And the federal government in Toronto, has, in Canada, has been very responsive to that and it's been transformational. You would never have seen that transit network plan uh, previously, without without their participation.
0: Oh, I've got have got a couple you, yeah. of cool, really quick questions here. Uh, one from me first, and very briefly. Um, so you've been in Auckland. You're from this extraordinary city of Toronto, uh, and you've been tweeting up a storm while you're here. Uh, one of them being uh, a, a snapshot of uh, this beautiful public sculpture by Michael Parracorfi, which that your bright coloured Cuisineers thing, which reminds me of those sort of uh, rods. You, you love it. So um, be honest. Um, what do you think of Auckland from what you've seen? Ludo, block your ears. Be honest, block your ears. I'm, I'm confident it'll be all right.
2: Well let, me, well, let me say the first thing, the very first, first thing that um, hit me very hard when I got here. Um,
3: well, I'll be honest,
2: I'll tell you the very first thing because <laughs> we just built a, a rail link from our airport to our downtown
0: here we go <laughs> and
2: uh i have to tell you um you got to get your ass in gear on that that hey, is also jennifer That's a very went? big. we've got to get our ship together huh yeah well yeah absolutely but you yeah, that, that rail link ours you know i felt like ours was 20 years too late but i was coming in And I kept saying to my cab driver, because I was looking at the traffic in the other lane, (laughs) I said, I'm going to have to leave a day early to get to the airport to get out of here. So we have a rail, a fixed link. It's an express rail link from the downtown. It used to be an hour-long drive. Now it's a 22-minute, very comfortable rail link. It's been very successful. It's not without its controversies. But it is absolutely critical that you do that as soon as possible. I, I can't say How that. How about that, Jennifer?
0: Very good. Uh, someone tweet that, by the way. Uh, I've got one here from the audience, and this is, I think this is uh, something that needs to be addressed as well. A question In Auckland, the urban boundary policy has been very controversial and labelled by some as the main reason for housing unaffordability. Jennifer, this has been political, this issue. Um, How difficult was it to get Toronto's Greenbelt policy adopted? And um, how important is an urban boundary for a city:
2: yeah, so let me the first thing let me say is that it was really hard it wasn't easy i don't want to pretend it was easy in any way. it took about ten years to get it in place it's been in place now for 10 years and there's an incredible myth that I'm sure gets perpetuated here because it gets perpetuated in Toronto and I've heard it from my colleagues in Australia as well as my colleagues in London and Portland. This myth that by putting an urban boundary in place that that, drive, that drives up land prices and is a detriment to affordability. And you know why that's a myth? Because you don't have a hard boundary right now and you've got a problem with affordability. So it's it's an absolute and complete myth. Uh, really, the Urban boundary is about a whole variety of key drivers. It is about the long-term sustainability and livability of the region. The risk is that you will continue to sprawl. You're adding 50,000 people a year. Uh, Imagine you're adding uh, 100,000 people a year. Your commutes are just going to get longer and longer and longer and longer. Uh, I invite all of you to come to Toronto and to see our region because you do not want to make the mistake that we've made. We are no longer having a debate about this, and we're no longer having debate about investing primarily in transit and not building roads, in part because uh, we have already built a 16-lane highway through our region that the minute it was built was filled with cars. We have an expressway right through the heart of the city that was built in the 1950s, and by 1960, it was at capacity, completely at capacity. So this notion that you can build a region that is sprawling right. and people can have a high quality of life, we've actually demonstrated that that simply doesn't work.
0: Okay, we've only got two more minutes, Ludo. So if you've got one more burning question, then we'll move on for a, uh, for a well-deserved uh, cup of coffee. Ludo. Oh, let's, let, thank you. Just one question. I,
3: I, we talk a lot about cities for people. and We do this all the time. And every transport guidance document, every manual says it's all about people, yet we continue to build cities that are not for people. What what are your successes and learnings in Toronto around how to shift that paradigm? Because it is a a paradigm shift. It's it's really quite a fundamental behavior change. What are the kind of of couple of key ingredients?
2: So the first one I'll say is that um, one of the challenges, and this is why I talked about precinct planning and delivering on the promise, and I think you're doing that right here. You're delivering on the promise. Uh, I think this area is, is breathtaking the deli- when you deliver on the promise you start to plant the seed that we can do things differently that we can that we can live differently and one of the really critical parts about our growing conversations is that uh... we don't want to put people in camps or put people in corners the minute you put people in corners you can't change your mind you have to defend your position yeah, and that group. is a risk to our urbanism is putting people in corners uh... there, there we have to find What our shared interests are, and then build the dialogue around those shared interests. We have a shared interest in a really high quality of life. Does anyone like a really long commute? No one likes a long commute. Uh, The myth of the long commute—I like to call it this idea that you can live really far away, hop on a highway, and uh, you know, be you know, you'll have you crank up the tunes, and it'll be great traveling. You know, you'll have your latte, whatever your your flat white. Um, that, that uh, I'm trying to be culturally appropriate, uh, that, that myth has been blown out of the water. And so one of the really big things, I had a slide that I took out which I wish I left in. When we did, we did our transit network plan, we called the planning process feeling congested and we talked about how we're all feeling congested. Our sidewalks are congested, our transits congested, our roads are congested. And part of what we did was we consulted with people we wouldn't normally consult with, and we did it in different ways. And I have a newspaper headline, and it's written by a newspaper columnist who writes for our kind of right wing rag. And the headline says, I'm seeing the world differently now that I've seen it from a bicycle seat. And the first line of the article is, I used to hate cyclists. And then the second is, But all that has changed now that I've seen the world from a bicycle seat. And what I love about this article is that that was the goal of the consultations. The goal was to say, hey, can we think about the city in a different way that is going to serve all of us and be in all of our interests? And if you can figure out a way to have your conversations in such a way that it's not kind of the echo chamber of all the same people talking to each other, then you can begin to implement change because people start going, oh, yeah, this makes sense. This is a better city for everyone.
0: Fabulous. Hey, look, we've got Great. to wrap it up. A, a, a massive round of applause for Jennifer Keysman and Ludo Campbell Reed. It's been absolutely inspiring, Jennifer. So, thank you so much uh, for that. Ludo as well. Are
3: you, are you closing?
0: No, you close. Am I? Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, look, thank you. Um, I've just got my list of things awesome. I'm meant to do here. Far from me to break from, uh, from what I'm told to do. Look, I'm, before we break, uh, thank you to everybody that came along today uh, to listen to Jennifer. Jennifer, it's really magical having you here. Um, we're, we've got a whole day of Jennifer on Monday. My team, Auckland Transport, we're going to be immersing you in the in the, bu- in the bureaucracy and the staff. We've got amazing people ready to, to mine you for information and ideas, and already today has been brilliant. So can I thank you all for coming today? Um, thank the Auckland Conversations team for putting this on. Um, I I'd like to just thank Wallace as well for doing your great job, um, and also the sponsors for the program, which are up on the up on the board, um, and. I guess thank you to the RMLA because we have partnered with you once before on this and it shows you what we can do in bringing amazing people to New Zealand and to Auckland. So thank you to you for the partnership. And last but not least, Boffa Miskell, who are sort of in a way our team's sort of partners in crime in this changing (laughs) city. And I want to shout out to Rachel and the team and Stuart and John Potter and and the guys who uh, really are our partners. So thank you everybody. And Jennifer, would everyone give her another
0: round of applause? You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.